from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I... got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... If you ever hear that in one of our live shows, it means something has gone horribly wrong. We weren't thinking on that technical level. We kind of naturally wrote what we thought was funny. We knew that they get it. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. If you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Yeah, imitation can be a sincere form of flattery, but a certain kind of imitation is generally much more interesting. Most, most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Christopher Guest as Nigel in This Is Spinal Tap. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Spinal Tap popularized the term mockumentary, but... What was interesting about it is that there wasn't really a genre of rock documentaries that they were so much parroting. They were parroting rock musicians themselves and the whole culture of a certain kind of rock. It was ridiculous, but also, like all great parodies, a subversive cultural critique. And after seeing it 30 years ago, I I could never look at a certain kind of rock band and rock musician again, or a documentary filmmaker, quite the same way. A few years earlier, I had done magazine parodies myself as a teenager at the Harvard Lampoon, which had made its modern name doing parodies. And there I learned that the best ones can be like Spinal Tap, meaning that you spoof the thing so well that afterward, the real things feel like self-parody. For instance, I can't watch a Westminster dog show on television without thinking of Christopher Guest's movie, Best in Show. She has really given him a thorough going over. Are all judges that thorough? I mean, she looks at the teeth. It's very important that all the attributes are examined. I don't think I ever could get used to being probed and prodded. I I told my proctologist once, hey, why don't you take me out to dinner and a movie sometime, you know? Yes, yes. Um, I remember you said that last year. Yeah. And similarly, a couple of decades ago, it was hard to listen to public radio without thinking of a certain Saturday Night Live sketch. Well, Pete, Terry and I have been looking forward to having you on the show because we know you're the master of all kinds of Christmas goodies. Tell us about them. The thing that I most like to bring out at this time of the year are my balls. (laughs) They're made from a secret sweaty family recipe. No one can resist my sweaty balls. That is Alec Baldwin with Anna Gasteyer before Alec had his own real public radio podcast. Today in Studio 360, trying to not sound like the parody version of a public radio show, we'll be looking at the art of parody. It says your name, Danger Powers. No, 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 no. Danger's my middle name. 
Every film genre now has its quintessential spoof or two. Cinematic parody really got started in the 1960s during the spy movie era on primetime television. Hello, Control Central. This is Agent 86. I'm putting a hold on my shoe and switching to my wallet. Get Smart was a parody of the show The Man from Uncle, which was in turn a semi-parody of James Bond. Get Smart was co-created by a guy who, right afterward, made lots of feature film parodies. Here I am. I'm Melvin Brooks. I've come to stop the show. Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs. Mel Brooks made a career for a while out of taking genres and showing us what is preposterous about them. I interviewed Mel Brooks three years ago. He said that he didn't think he could get away with blazing saddles these days. I don't think I could even punch a horse, let alone a little old lady. It was, a, I don't know, somewhere between 65 and 75 was a time of great comic freedom in America. And uh, I, I don't think there's any other movie ever, ever made that was as, well, I, the nice word would be bold. The real word would be an execrable taste, you know. Uh, good morning, ma'am. And isn't it a lovely morning? Up yours, <laughs> Oh, Jesus. What did you expect? Welcome, Sonny. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the New West. You know. Morons. That was a good moment. He was always going for the laugh, of course. But for Mel Brooks, the real payoff was when his movies were as much about life and real people and the absurdities thereof. We didn't care about the comedy that said, so my wife said, you never take me anywhere. Take me to a new place. I want to see new places. So I took her to the kitchen, you know, which is funny. <laughs> you know, that's Hannah Youngman. But it, that was not the comedy that that thrilled or excited us. The comedy that, that excited us were what was actually happening to people. And if we could point it out in a humorous way, we knew that they'd get it. Uh, we were not the comedy of privilege and we were not the comedy of stand-up and one-liners. We were the comedy, I think, without being too, you know, puffy or with humanity. I mean, we just cared about people. Mel Brooks was the parody filmmaker of the 1970s. Amazingly, he released both Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein in one year, 1974. But then, in the 1980s, the funniest parody filmmaker Shirley was David Zucker. Are you trying to bait me now by using saying Shirley? Because I won't, I won't bite at that one. Shirley, you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Leslie Nielsen and Robert Hayes in Airplane. David Zucker had also made Kentucky Fried Movie, and then The Naked Gun, and a couple of installments of the Scary Movie franchise. A few years ago, Zucker told me how he got into the parody racket. When we got out of college, we wanted to keep making jokes and trying to cause trouble, I think. And so I went down to Chicago and saw a show that was called The um, 
the groove tube. It was in a loft in Old Town, and the audience sat on a gigantic waterbed and watched 70 minutes of what was the, then the first Sony videotape. Hmm. And I had never seen anything like it, and that's that was what my epiphany was. I drove right back to Madison, and I said, we have to start a theater, and this is what we can do. And, and, and that's exactly what you did, and that became Kentucky Fried Movie. That became Kentucky Fried Movie, only after 20 minutes of live sketches, we would go to 20 minutes of video footage, mostly satires of, of commercials. In the past year, over 800,000 Americans have died. Despite millions of dollars of research, death continues to be our nation's number one killer. Hello, I'm Henry Gibson, speaking to you on behalf of the United Appeal for the Dead. Reviewers like Rex Reed couldn't believe that we would do something so tasteless and inane, but in gathering material for these commercial spoofs, we discovered the movie Zero Hour on late-night television. Released in 1957, it was a black-and-white movie, and it had that exact deadly serious demeanor. Put yourself in this man's place. Aboard a transcontinental plane, suddenly half the passengers, including your own son, are struck by a paralyzing deadly illness. We would leave our videotape recorder, which was then a reel-to-reel machine, we would leave that going all night just to record the, the late-night movies. And when Zero Hour came on, we said, hey, this, this is a pretty good movie. I want you to get on a horn and talk this guy down. You'll have to talk him onto the approach. And so help me, you'll have to talk him right down to the ground. This makes us laugh just watching the seriousness of it. So that became Airplane. I want you to get on the horn and talk that guy down. Now, you're going to have to let him get the feel of that airplane on the way. And you'll have to talk him onto the approach. So help me, you'll have to talk him right down to the ground. We would watch the serious movies and then put in our own zingers, and not even for public consumption, just in the room to be funny, and it ended up in the movie. He'll never make it in this soup, never. Not one chance in a million. Yeah, I know, I know. But it's his ship now, his command. He's in charge. Boss, head man, top dog, big cheese, a head honcho. Captain, number look at this. I remember writing that one. What could we do to subvert the all-American image of airline pilots? Uh-huh. Of course, we, we weren't thinking on that technical level. We just we kind of naturally wrote what we thought was funny. I won't deceive you, Mr. Stryker. We're running out of time. Surely there must be something you can do. I'm doing everything I can. Now stop calling me Shirley. Did you ever think that you would be able to cast... The, the people like Peter Graves and Robert Stack and finally Leslie Nielsen, the, the sort of real, well, that was, real guys in these roles? That was really our intention. We were going to try to get these, these real serious actors so that it would almost look, from the audience's point of view, like we had tricked them into doing <laughs> the movie and mm-hmm. they didn't know what they were saying. And one of the challenges was to really sit on the actors and, and make sure that they didn't wink or try to be funny. In 2008, David Zucker made a film called An American Carol that was not nearly as beloved as his earlier films. Okay, action! Here I am in the island paradise, Cuba, where there's a hospital on every block. As we can clearly see, Cubans have the very best health care in the world. Not like in America, where it can kill you. I've brought two Americans here, Bob and Joan. An American Carol is Zucker's parody of a Michael Moore-style film. Zucker is a conservative, and the audience for that humor can be elusive. It's probably easier to tear something down and make fun of something that is perceived as being the establishment than to 
than to promote something like to support the military it's it's harder to do that and and to make it funny yeah i mean there there is something almost inherently if not incompatible difficult about straight ahead old fashioned nationalistic patriotism and the kind of comedies you make <laughs> i know it's but it's almost the i i still see american and american carols being a little bit subversive because it's just so unusual to have this to have this humor come from the right right you know what we're doing is taking on a big target and on the way you know you just try to entertain but you're exploding clichés of this which isn't really a genre which is but it's a you know it's a political side i mean it i don't see that a movie like this has ever been tried before but i didn't want to do scary movie 17 so no i understand good for you More recently, some of my favorite movie parodies are by three British guys: Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and Edgar Wright. From 2004 to 2013, they made three excellent genre send-ups. Before zombies were everywhere, they nailed the zombie film with Shaun of the Dead. Don't forget to kill Philip. What? Then buddy cop films, Hot Fuzz. There's no way you could perpetrate that amount of carnage and mayhem and not incur a considerable amount of paperwork. And alien invasion films with the world's end. We do not believe you speak for all humanity. You are but two men, two drunk men, three drunk men. I spoke with the three of them after Hot Fuzz came out. Well, I think the thing with Sean and with Hot Fuzz is, in a weird way, even though they are kind of comedies and they have parody elements, we kind of We almost like to think of spoof as a dirty word, only in that spoof has come, become synonymous with a certain type of uh, tone, and it's about finding ways to kind of like write gushy fan letters to the films that inspired us. And really, why we set out to make the police genre is because uh, there is no precedent for cop action films in the UK whatsoever. Why is that? Just the budgets, or Hollywood only knows how to do this? No, I think it comes down solely to the fact that the British Bobby is not packing heat, and therefore the British Bobby has failed on filmic principle number one. The lawman without gun is、uh, is not kind of worthy of the cinema screen. Now, Simon, you wrote this, co-wrote this, co-wrote film, as well as Shaun of the Dead. Correct.、Um, what 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 movies did you watch growing up? Zombie movies, cop movies.、Uh, yeah, all sorts. I mean, I, I'm kind of、uh, a, a child of the VHS generation, I suppose, and I was I was just turning into a teenager when that started to really hit. So those kind of afternoons spent watching illicit、uh, rented titles in my friend's house,、uh, you know, were very important. And films like American Wealth in London, and you know, Die Hard, and, and Ro- Ro- Robocop. Is Robocop, a, yeah. Robocop is so much more exciting when you're watching it in the afternoon when your parents are out. <laughs> yeah, knowing that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't really be watching it. Yeah, I was always、uh, after my parents spent an after Sunday afternoon in the pub. I was rewarded by、uh, being able to get the hills have eyes. Really, <laughs> the original because they were drunk and they would just let you do anything you want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Simon, this this character is is this super efficient, hard ass, straight arrow, kind of unlikable. Yeah, guy. How did you figure out how to make this somebody that? Audiences would would go with. Well, I think he had to become that. You know, I think you know Angel is like the straight center to the film. He's the,、uh, you know, you're waiting for him to open up. He sort of turns up in Sanford. He's like a robot, really. He's like a sort of he's like the T1000, and it takes Danny Nicholas Nick's character to sort of bring him some humility. You know. Have you ever fired your gun up in the air and gone ah? No, I have not ever fired my gun up in the air and gone ah. 
30. Sorry, I'm, I just... I just feel like I'm missing out sometimes. I want to do what you do. You do do what I do. What on earth do you think you're missing out on? Gunfights, car chases, proper action. Police work is not about proper action. 29. If you'd have paid attention to me in school, you'd understand that it's not all about gunfights and car chases. I mean, if Shaun of the Dead was a film about a guy learning to take responsibility, then Hot Fuzz is about a guy learning to let it go. And and it's fun to watch him go from being this straight arrow, kind of like, you know, unsmiling, humorless sort of automaton to being someone who is really quite enjoying jumping through the air and firing a gun, you know. And, and Nick, before I ask you about your character, who to me is the richest wellspring of comedy in this film, describe him for the listeners. Uh, well, Danny uh, is, uh, you know, a, a, an early 30-something uh, police officer. Uh, he's a local boy from Samford. Uh, you know, he loves his job, he loves his dad, and he loves the village that he lives in, and he's a very enthusiastic man. And he's sort of a 14-year-old boy in a 30-something-year-old body. He, yeah, he's like a he's like a two-year-old Weimarana in the body of a, <laughs> of a big man. You know, he's like, I played him like a... A police dog. He's the kind of uh, Labrador that will come in and knock glasses off a table with his tail. And his his belief or his desire to believe that all these cop movies he's he's wallowed in all these years are real are are so wonderful. As when you ask about whether if you point a gun, if you shoot a what, what is the line? Uh, is, is there a place in a man's head that if you shoot it, it will blow up? <laughs> I think this is the coolest thing he's ever heard. Well, as a, Edgar, as, as, a, as a filmmaker, you do this, what I found to be a very funny thing early on when there aren't any great blazing shootouts, just a lot of paperwork filling out. But you shoot it and, and edit it as though something tremendously serious and action-packed is going on. Yeah, when we were, we were researching the film, when me and Simon were writing it, we interviewed lots of police officers in person and through questionnaires. And one of the questions on the questionnaire was, which part of the job have you never seen dramatized on screen? And every single one said the paperwork is 50% of the job. And I remember we were in a station and in a room, you know, as big as this, kind of seeing eight officers sitting around with their kind of stab vests on, like rather forlornly filling out lots of forms. So I wanted to shoot that paperwork like man on fire. It's, it's, so, it's interesting to me and, and not surprising, I guess, now that you say it, that you actually did research. Even with this ridiculous, silly premise, you took it seriously on its own terms. We watched all of our favorite action films again. We sought out kind of like films we hadn't seen and we watched all the kind of like the, you know, the generic B-movie ones as well. So that was kind of like the, you know, the, the fun part in inverted commas of the research. And then the rest of it was interviewing real coppers. And the, the, and the, fa- the, the reason was that was because basically the film is to kind of get from A to B to examine the gulf between the mundanity and the reality of being a police officer in a tiny rural town and getting to kind of Will Smith running around with his shirt undone with two automatics in Miami. Yeah. Why didn't you take your shirt off more, Simon? I wanted to, actually. I, kind of, <laughs> I suddenly felt like I was in a position to, having worked out so hard, but uh, maybe the next time. I'll get mine out. He does. When, when the over-the-top action starts and bullets are flying and all of that action takes place in this treacly sweet English village, was it fun to lampoon and, and, and defile that stereotypical picture postcard version of English life? Yeah, I mean, you know what? I think we, 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 we felt like we had a, a free pass to do that because that, that is my hometown where we shot the film. Oh, literally? Yeah, it is my hometown where we shot the film. And growing up in that area, and Simon is from a similar area, 
but the overwhelming civic pride of the people that it used to I used to find it amusing. And that and that absolutely exists. You hear yeah. so many stories of like, you know, and, and rivalry between towns of like sort of like, you know, the the biggest vegetable competition and people kind of like sort of towns sabotaging each other. Kind of like sort of uh, Who's made the moistest cake? <laughs> <laughs> it happens, you know, and you hear if you go to any kind of regional area in, in England you you'll and read like a small town paper, you just it's hilarious, you know, old women breaking into greenhouses in the dead of the night to sabotage someone's carrot, you know. And swans escaping are the real crime blot. That, yeah. that, that was actually a true happened. story. That was a true story from our research as a real anecdote because in my hometown they have a, like a moat at the Bishop's Palace and they have swans that they've trained to ring a bell for food. Sergeant Angel. Morning, the swans escaped. The swans escaped? Yeah. Right, and where's the swan escape from exactly? Ah, uh, the castle. Oh yeah, and who might you be? Mr. Staker. Yeah, Mr. Peter Ian Staker. P.I. Staker. Yeah. Right. Piss Taker. Come on! Yes, Mr. Staker. Um, we'll do everything we can. Can you describe it to me? It's about uh, two foot tall, um, long, slender neck. Yeah. Kind of orange and black bill. Anything else? Well, it's a swan. There is a lot of action going on here and speeding cars and, and, uh, and just... Uh, an insane amount of gunfire. Were there any uh, actual mishaps as you were shooting? Well, I remember on the first day of the shoot, the first day, and we actually, like, you know, Simon and Nick doing a proper stunt of running away and jumping over a hedge, which was six foot tall, and we had a ramp and a crane, and it's actually quite a difficult thing to do on the first day. And I think, Simon, you didn't stretch properly before mm. doing it and kind of really hurt your quads. You were kind of, like, starting to tear up because you sort of said, I, I can't believe I've injured myself on the first day. How am I going to get through this? And you, and you felt like you'd really let yourself down, and I thought it was kind of sweet. I don't know if I teared up. But, uh, you did, you did. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably just something in my eye. Nah, you, <laughs> you, you, nah. you were crying. You were crying. No, it was, it was hay fever. <laughs> Edgar Wright, Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, thank you very much for coming into Studio 360. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you for having us. I talked with them in 2007. Still ahead this hour, a musician named John Kelly walks the line between parody and homage. In high heels. Bend your vocal cords to the point where you're coloring it as close as you possibly could to actual sound. It's mimicry. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. In this whole hour today, we're talking about parody and the ideas that drive that kind of mockery by imitation. Parody can be savage, but sometimes it can be very fond. When and why does parody spill over into homage? That is a perfect question for a guy named John Kelly. He is an actor and choreographer and director, but he's best known for one project in particular. Since the 1980s, he's been going on stage as Joni Mitchell complete with dress and Canadian manner and soprano voice. A few years ago, Sharon Lerner talked to John Kelly to find out why his impersonation is mostly a, a celebration. I came upon a child of God She was walking Oh, 
I first did Joni uh, at the first Wigstock Festival, which happened on Labor Day of 1985. And I always thought that I always knew I wanted to sing her music at some point, you know, because she wrote the song Woodstock, and, and that was really the, the moment for me to kind of jump into her shoes, so to speak. John Kelly did jump into Joni Mitchell's shoes, or at least into some open-toed ochre heels that he wears with a pale blonde wig and dress when he sings Joni Mitchell's folk songs. Kelly went on the road as Joni in the 80s. In 1997, he revived the show in New York, And since then, audiences have greeted his renditions of her songs as if they really were his. Kelly pokes fun at what you might call Joni's Joniness. He makes his angular face seem even longer by sucking in his cheeks. He flounces around a little in his dress, and when he opens his mouth between songs... Her meandering Canadian stage patter comes out. When I think about like being a, being a performer, you know, some nights you're in the same space, in the same shape, doing the same things, but it's different because you're different, you know. Each, yeah. it's true. There's a lot of recognition over there. Yeah. Eventually, the real Joni Mitchell got wind of Kelly and showed up at one of his performances. Joni Mitchell lives in Northwest Canada. Our phone connection wasn't great. I realized halfway through that it was, it wasn't entirely camp. You you forgot, you know, that he was a man, and or at least I did, and so did the people that I was with. And and what you what you saw was more of an homage. You know, they accepted the illusion. They called to him, "We love you, Joni." You know, my boyfriend was calling, "We love you, Joni," to him. You know, from the audience, we all got swept up in it, you know. It was kind of like like dying and going to your own funeral in a way. There were moments when it was very profound for me. The night was big for Kelly, too. When the show started, we were so nervous, and the audience was so charged. The night was so charged that, you know, my hands were shaking and that the tempi were too fast initially. And at the beginning of the second act, we did Shadows and Light, and I was like, screw it, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to get this mother. And I did. Sometimes in reservation dining rooms, miners in the lantern ring. And she was bravoing. She was standing up screaming. I mean, it really, it was like sculpting in front of Michelangelo. Some Joni Mitchell tributes haven't been quite so reverent. There was some folk singer at some point, somewhere in the 80s, who who, who uh, did my songs using the voice of Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, traveling, <laughs> John Kelly was different. After the show, Joni Mitchell went backstage and gave him a dulcimer, a stringed instrument that she uses in some of her songs, and he now uses on stage. Perhaps she was especially appreciative of Kelly's performance because Joni Mitchell herself has gone in drag. Maybe you remember the man on the cover of her album, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter? That was Joni, dressed in a man's suit, hat, and even facial hair. I'm long between the nose and the upper lip, so there's a lot of nice room in there for a mustache. <laughs> Joni Mitchell never sang in character, though. 
And that's where Kelly's performance takes on the surreal. How does a fully grown man belt out notes most women can't hit? I could teach my feet to fly. Oh, I wish I it's a switch that goes on inside one, you know, as an actor, you just kind of make this switch. Like Meryl Streep does it all the time, I think, you know. Um, it's kind of diving into the love of something so much that you can kind of convince yourself or, or you know, uh, <laughs> bend your vocal cords to the point where you're, you're coloring it as close as you possibly could to the to actual sound. My fingernails are filthy I've got each towel on my feet And I miss my clean white linen And my fancy French cologne in the end, though, the show really isn't about sounding just like Joni Mitchell. It's more that John Kelly jars your senses. He's not doing fake eyelashes, too much lipstick drag. He's wearing a pretty dress and sensible shoes. And then suddenly, he's singing. And maybe because you're thinking about the loopy story he's just told or the way he flips his blonde hair off his face, you're blindsided by how beautiful Joni Mitchell's songs really are. It's a send-up, but at the same time, it's a complete homage. My favorite place to be is with one foot in irony and one foot in pathos, because that's life. Thanks to Sharon Lerner for that piece. It's nice that Joni Mitchell herself got on board that parody of her. When we did parodies back at the Lampoon, real magazines, the ones we parodied, were usually flattered and played along. But that isn't always the case. If somebody won't take kindly or gracefully to a parody, you can make it so clever that they don't even realize they're being mocked. Jonathan Mitchell brought us a story about an old dance that did precisely that. The cakewalk was a dance that the black slaves in America, in the South, did during slavery times. Diane McIntyre is a choreographer who's researched the cakewalk for use in the theater. She says that when they invented it, the slaves had very few opportunities for personal expression. Uh, you know, there were some times when they were allowed to dance and sing and have their own gatherings. And so in these gatherings, uh, dance developed which was a takeoff on the mannerisms of their slave masters. The cakewalk is really a strut. You might call it a haughty type of uh, carriage in the body. Very uplifted, shoulders back, chin high, nose up in the air, leaned back, and the knees pick up high like a prance. I guess like a, you might say like a stately horse but it's a little bit overdone, you know, over the top. <laughs> it was a little joke. It's like, oh, yeah, let me see Master Struts like this. Yeah, we put it in a dance. They'll never know. You know, it was entertaining for the slaves themselves, and also the slave masters liked it a lot, even though they didn't know that it was a um, parody of them. They just thought it was fun. Yeah, let's get the slaves together, watch them do their dance. Watch them do their cakewalk. Yeah, isn't that uh, delightful what they do? 
The slave owners would even sponsor contests among the slaves to see who was the best cakewalker. There were certain people who could lean back very far and kick high in these cakewalks. And the higher you could kick, the better cakewalker you were. Then the person who won the uh, contest would get a cake. And so then the phrase came about, he takes the cake. That's where that expression came from. After the slaves were emancipated, blacks continued to dance the cakewalk, and during that time, minstrel shows became very popular. You know, there was a blackface minstrel show, usually performed by white performers in blackface. The blackface minstrels would perform the cakewalk as part of their act. So that was kind of ironic because it was a circular parody. White performers were parodying a black dance, which actually parodied whites. The cakewalk eventually made its way to ballrooms, and its syncopated rhythms are credited with inspiring ragtime music, which in turn inspired jazz. Scott Joplin wrote cakewalks. And in 1908, the composer Claude Debussy even wrote a cakewalk of his own in his piano suite Children's Corner. So as time went on, the dance's subversive origins became less and less important to people. They simply became enthralled with the beauty of the dance itself. It made people feel good. It has a really triumphant energy because you have the people dancing with the open hearts, with the open chest, like they're walking into the sun. Thanks to Jonathan Mitchell for that story. Coming up, the king of pop gets sent up by the king of pop parody. Don't you tell me you're full, just eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Get yourself an egg and beat. Weird Al Yankovic live right here. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. It doesn't matter. To finish this hour about parody, the king of pop music spoofs. Weird Al Yankovic. This parody of Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll was on Weird Al's debut album in 1983. Novelty records were nothing new, but they usually came and went quickly, often as singles. This album sold half a million copies, and its follow-up, called In 3D, went platinum. And Weird Al just kept getting bigger, enduring even as the acts he parodied disappeared. In 2013, he made it to number one on the Billboard album chart, higher than a lot of the performers he was impersonating. I talked to Weird Al when he was at work on that album, which went to number one, called Mandatory Fun. Welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you in Studio 360. Thank you, Kurt. Great to be here. So you have been around long enough to parody Billy Ray Cyrus and his daughter, Miley, uh, Madonna and her daughter, 
Lady Gaga. <laughs> um, not only do you have multiple generations of fans, but the artists you parody have come to to see your music as more than just some stunt. Lady Gaga called your parody of her song Born This Way a rite of passage. I want to play just a little bit of that song. I'm so completely original. My new look is all the rage. I'll wrap my small intestines round my neck and set fire to myself on stage. So at this point, not that you've been ever a vicious satirist, but how does it feel to be this kind of elder statesman, some kind of bizarro world version of Ed Sullivan and Dick Clark? It's a very odd thing because, yeah, it, it's sort of a, a signal that an artist has reached a certain plateau in their career. You know, they've got, they've got the Grammys, they've got the platinum albums, then they get the Weird Al parody. So it's just part of the triumvirate there. So you're a little younger than I am, but it's the 60s, it's the early 70s, and rock and roll is happening, and Hendrix is happening, and Dylan is happening. This guitar revolution of rock and roll takes itself very seriously in many ways. And you have an accordion and start writing parodies. How did that happen? <laughs> well, oddly enough, uh, my friends actually didn't want me in their rock bands with an accordion. Really? They weren't ahead of the curve. They didn't realize that the accordion would take over Western civilization the way that it obviously has. There were no hipsters to re- rediscover it yet. You know, I was the original hipster. I'm sorry to <laughs> yeah. say yes. And at what point did you decide – well, the accordion is funny. Well, I didn't intend it to be funny, but, you know, I, I love rock and roll, and I'd learn songs off the radio and play it, you know, on the accordion, and my friends would think there was humor in that. They thought the juxtaposition was uh, was ridiculous, and uh, I didn't think quite so much, but I found that other people did, and uh, I kind of used that to my advantage. I, I, I started playing uh, Doors songs on the trumpet. If I'd only understood what you understood. <laughs> um, you jokingly say you're the original hipster, but the hipsters of right now are all embracing you. You've done on Cartoon Network, Robot Chicken, Tim and Eric Awesome Show, 30 Rock. Do you go to them and strategize of, oh, I want the cool kids to like me, or do they, <laughs> do they come, just come to you? You know, it's hard to proactively try to be cool or relevant. It just it's the opposite. You know, it kind of cool, kind of right? happens yeah. if it happens. So I don't I don't know. You know, for a long stretch of my career, I wasn't considered cool. In fact, my manager will tell you stories about when I was starting out. He couldn't get his phone calls returned. He'd say, "Hi, I represent Weird Al Yankovic," and they'd say, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Really? So <laughs> even after you'd had hits, you know, I had to have a lot of hits before I stopped being considered a one-hit wonder. Then you were a two-hit wonder and a six-hit right, wonder, right? Right. And then after all, oh, he's not going away, is he? Oh, okay. Yeah. And you won three Grammy Awards. Your first one in 1984 was for Eat It, uh-huh. named Best Comedy Record. And anybody who was alive then will remember the music video. It is a is a shot-for-shot parody of Michael Jackson's video for Beat It. The arrival of MTV just when you essentially, as you were starting out, is an incredibly fortuitous thing, right? Yeah, I was sort of an outlier in that sense because yeah, MTV and I started out at the same time. And when MTV started out, people were obsessed with it. I mean, you know, it was a 24-hour music video channel. People hadn't seen anything like that before. And, you know, I was certainly one of those people that would watch MTV for hours and hours every day. And the hit videos were things people were intimately familiar with. You knew every shot of those videos. So that made my job very easy because all you had to do was tweak things a little bit and people instantly knew, knew what direction you were going. Right. Well, let's let's go back in time to that uh, moment and hear the, our special unplugged version of Eat It performed live right here. Mm-hmm. 
you know that other kids are starving in Japan? So eat it, just eat it. Don't wanna argue, I don't wanna debate. Don't wanna hear about what kind of food you hate. You won't get no dessert till you clean up your plate. So eat it, don't you tell me you're full. This ain't some kind of game. Now, if you starve to death, you'll just have yourself to blame. So eat it, just eat it. You better listen, better do what you're told. You haven't even touched your tuna casserole. You better chow down, or it's gonna get cold. So. That was Weird Al Yankovic and his band performing live the ultimate modern pop parody, Eat It. Uh, you sort of in that – in this unplugged way, you've sort of turned it into a Clapton-esque Layla-like thing. Yes, we – that was actually something that we had done for MTV in the late 90s. They wanted to do a parody spot based on the fact that I had kind of changed my look at that time and their unplugged series was obviously very popular. So we did this mock commercial for our new sound and we did these Eric Clapton-esque versions of our uh-huh. hits. I've always loved, and every time I've heard that song, I chuckle still at the phrase tuna casserole being in a rock and roll song. And <laughs> One of the first times, I believe. I think. I think. And can you introduce this greatest cover band on earth? Yes. Uh, over there on keys, Ruben Valchera, Jim Kimo West on guitar, Steve J on bass, and John Bermuda Schwartz on drums. Uh, as you're picking songs to do parodies of, do you have like a team of... 
Weird Al interns who who are just combing <laughs> through all the different genres and say, "This is a hit. This is about to become a hit." Oh, you know, I do not. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a whole office full of people saying, "You know what you should do." Uh, no, I, I just personally go through the Billboard charts and go online, and I, I kind of make a master list of songs that I think are good candidates for parody, and then I try to think of every possible variation on the theme and see if there's anything that you know has some kind of spark where I can develop it into a full three and a half minute long pop song. Would you be willing to take suggestions from our listeners? Uh, no. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> I don't because I, I, that's, that's the bane of my existence. Every day of my I life, bet. people say, I got this great idea. I've been holding on to it since the third grade. It's like, <laughs> oh, you should do this. So I, I, I tell people right off the bat, like, you know, I, I don't really take ideas from people. What do you listen to at home or in your car? A little bit of everything. I've got a 10-year-old daughter, so we mostly listen to what she wants to listen to in the car. But she's she's pretty again warped. Again and again and again? Yes, yeah, it's, it's true. But, I mean, thankfully, she's about as warped as me. And uh, for about a one-month period, we listened to uh, They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha, nonstop. Really? <laughs> the car. Clearly, you introduced that to her. Oh, which yes. was yeah. the great novelty comic song of my childhood. Yeah, that was uh, – in fact, I'm going to see Jerry Samuels, who's Napoleon the Fourteenth. Pretty soon, he he uh, runs a, a rest home uh, oh. <laughs> so now, so I'm going to – Is that sad or not? No, I mean he's doing what he loves as well. I'm going to uh, visit the people there pretty soon. Really? Yeah. Uh, I understand because I've never heard uh, a recording of it, but you do a version of Elvis Costello's Radio Radio? I do. You know, we, uh, we do th- – that's sort of our emergency song, meaning that if there's anything that happens on stage – the computer server goes down or something that makes it impossible for us to continue, we stop the show and say, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to go on with this. Radio, radio. And then we just go into that. So it's, it's, if you ever hear that in one of our live shows, it means something has gone horribly wrong. Can we, can we declare this in a special emergency? <laughs> Let's do that. Here we go. That was Weird Al Yankovic playing Radio Radio, which is wonderful to hear because I've never heard it before. Oh, really? I mean, I've heard Elvis Costello play it. I've not (laughs) heard you play it. Al Yankovic, it is a pleasure and honor to have you here. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.
And congratulations for 30 years. Yay! Do you figure 30 more years? Well, yeah, at least, don't you think? Sure. You know, <laughs> Mick Jagger is almost 80, isn't he? And then the, the third Cyrus child. You True. Know, I got Miley Jr. The grandkid, of course. Exactly. And now we have strategically placed an accordion, you may have noticed. Oh, this thing. That This thing now in your lap. Oh, uh, look at you, that. Where'd that come from? Would you be up for playing this out instrumentally? As Just a little something? Okay, I finish can do that. the show? All right, here we go. You can hear more of my conversation with Weird Al at Studio360.org, or you can also hear him perform another of his songs, his parody of Bob Marley called Buy Me a Condo. That is it for this hour of Studio 360. Thank you very much for listening. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louie Mitchell, Krista Ripple, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bizzari, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez, Judy Gu, Jackie Harris. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks again. Beautiful! PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, the power of science to bring us together. When they announced the discovery, the whole world stopped. And we're talking for a second about being under the same sky. Einstein's theory of relativity turns 100. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. 